Some jokes. Hey, there we go. He said no. He said we'll get you fired up right now. All right. Go with me to the book of Jude, if you will, uh, as we've been making our way through uh, Jude in the um, past uh, couple months, believe it or not. Actually, I believe this morning is week number eight and uh, may have uh, three or four weeks ahead of us or so. I know where Jude is. There it is. Well, they, let's just jump into it this morning as we have been walking through Jude. And if you've been with us, and I believe most of you have, and we are glad that you're here this morning, whether in person or online. Um, but as we're kind of walking through this letter to Jude, we're right in the middle of Jude kind of unloading on these people, uh, these false teachers, as we'll see this morning, and these apostates, these who have crept in the church, as he says there in verse 4, that they're in the church and they are clearly not of the Lord. They are of themselves, and so that's what we started last week, uh, really about two weeks ago, as he started describing these people in verse 8, and uh, he, as he described them, as we said last week, in some triads, and uh, Jude is, uh, it writes in triads, these kind of these groups of three, uh, well, this morning he gets industrious and goes from a group of three to a group of six, and so we're going to finish uh, his description this morning. Uh, but as he talked about those who relied on dreams and defiled the flesh and rejected authority and they blasphemed angels. Uh, and he talked about Michael and talked about Moses and all these things were happening in their blasphemy. Um, and then so last week we began there in verse 10. Again, these people, uh, he says they blaspheme all they do not understand. And he compares them to irrational animals, uh, not spiritual people, but earthly people, not people thinking in the, the, the ways of the Lord, but thinking in the terms and the ways of the flesh. But then he starts in verse 11, uh, woe to them. And he uh, begins these nine woes. And it's funny as you kind of walk through and, and look at uh, other authors and theologians and commentators and some would say they count differently but I count nine I count nine woes starting in verse 11 and we dealt with three last week and we're going to deal with six uh, this morning that doesn't mean that it's going to be twice as long as last week uh, we could our stomachs couldn't handle that uh, but we're going to walk through these six things as he continues these woes that started in verse 11 and kind of ends there in verse uh, 13 because woe to them it says in verse 11 and skip down to the end for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever and so Jude is, is not holding any punches he is calling these individuals out and he's making it very clear of of the the, the type of people they are he's, he's really speaking not necessarily to who they are in identity but he's making it very clear that those who do these things they are not of the lord it are it are these people these certain people who have been reserved for judgment and he's made that clear all along so let's uh let's read our verse and let's pray and let's jump into it so jude verse 11 we'll start there woe to them for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to this text, Lord, I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, Lord. Help us to see your truth 
Help us by your Holy Spirit to uh, be able to take this truth and apply it to our lives as we understand what it means to the original reader and how you can use it in us today. Thank you, Lord, uh, that you have not left us by ourselves um, to fend against these wolves. Lord, you've given us your word, you've given us your spirit, and you've given us your son. And it's in his sweet and strong name we do pray. Amen. So as we read through those verses, and really it's been true kind of this whole section of verse 8 through 13, there's some difficult things. There's some things as you read through these, you're like, what is he talking about? I don't understand what, uh, what I don't understand this stuff about Korja Bay, and I don't understand what it means to walk in the way of Cain. I don't understand these love feasts and waters clouds and all these, these terminology that Jude uses. And so it's helpful for us, obviously, as it is with all Scripture, to understand what it means, to understand what it means to the original audience, so that we can understand what it means to us today and how we can live uh, conforming our lives to Christ. And so we dealt with these first three woes last week. Woe to them who walked in the way of Cain. Woe to them who walked in the way of Balaam. And woe to them who walked in the way of Korah. And so we're going to continue this morning with these, uh, these other six woes, if you will. And so there in verse 12, these are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. And so the first point this morning is that Jude cautions against loveless leaders. He cautions against loveless leaders. So what are these love feasts? That sounds very fill in the blank. It sounds very interesting. It doesn't sound like something that we encounter often in Scripture, uh, maybe in the Song of Solomon, but not something that we expect to see here in Jude, these love feasts. Well, it's probably a little bit different than what maybe you would think just by a casual reading of it. Some would actually call these agape feasts, which is interesting because we're uh, here in this church for about 13 years, I believe. Is that right, Miss Maddie? Agape Bible Church. And so agape is not just the name of a church in West Monroe. Agape, as we know, is, uh, is one of the, the understandings of the love, the love of the Lord, the love God has for His people. And so what, is these, what are these agape feasts? And very clearly put, they're not like these annual feasts, they're not monthly feasts, they're not fifth quarter fellowships. Uh, they are these regular weekly times of gathering of the, uh, of the first century church as they're coming together to share a meal, to be intimate with one another, to, to come to know each other, to, uh, to, to really increase their, uh, their fellowship with one another. So far more than just let's Let's break bread and have some burgers together. But they were coming together to know one another. And what they would call their love feast. It was for those in the church. And they would have those on the Lord's day. They would have on the day they would worship. Uh, usually before the Lord's Supper. So they would gather as God's people. They would have this very intimate meal with one, with one another. And then they would have the Lord's Supper. You can go to 1 Corinthians. A passage we go to almost every week as we go to the Lord's Supper. But in 1 Corinthians, we see this mentioned probably more clearly than anywhere else in the New Testament. But 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17, for a few verses there, it says, But in the following instructions, Paul's talking to the church at Corinth, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worst. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that you who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not for the Lord's Supper that you eat, 
For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you, not, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And so Paul is addressing the gathering of the church as they gather for these, uh, these love feasts, these times where the church come together to, to continue to form and grow these very intimate bonds that can really only be found in the church. The relationships that people have in a gospel-centered church, the relationships people have with, with those they gather around who desire the same thing, to conform their life and their mind and their, and their heart to the image of God through His Word, are deeper than any relationship I'm convinced that you'll find anywhere in all of humanity. I even don't like using the term church family, uh, especially nowadays. My church family is not just some group of people over here on the side that I get to hang out with on Sundays and maybe go to community group. But my church family, those that, that we covenant together here at North Hills, are some of the deepest relationships in my life that I treasure and the Lord uses in my life, not just to have fun, enjoy good meals, because we know that North Hills knows how to cook and we know how to eat. But far beyond that, that we are a group, as the church is designed to do, to know one another and to love one another. And all these one another's that we see in the New Testament. So these love feasts are, are the church gathering together to grow in their love, their relationship, and their knowledge of one another. To become closer to one another. And to a degree, I would say they are similar to our community groups. They're not an exact comparison, but they are similar. Our community groups desire as we gather. And I'm excited, as Evan said earlier, as our community groups start back this week. They're not just a thing to do. They're not just a replacement of Wednesday night uh, prayer meeting. They're not just something we need to do to stay busy within our church. It is part of the lifeblood of North Hills. As we gather in people's homes, as we gather around a meal, as we gather to, to know each other and to stir one another up, to encourage each other in the word and so this is something we desire as covenant members of north fields as part of the bride of christ is to know the church but these people they are blemishes it says and these love feasts these people these apostates these false teachers they are creeping into these love feasts and they are blemishes in the intimate fellowship of true believers go over to again to first corinthians chapter 5 they are blemishes, but not all of those who eat together are of one another. And we see this again in Paul's, uh, Paul's words to the same church, the church of Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people, not at all men, the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and the swindlers or the idolaters, since then you would uh, need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual morality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging uh, outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge this evil person from among you. So in a very similar way as, as Paul is, is writing to the church of Corinth, Jude is saying the same thing of these outsiders because they have crept into the church. They are appearing to be godly. They are saying, they are professing Christ. They are crept into the church. But when it comes to these love feasts, when it comes to this gathering of the true, of the true church, they, it says, are blemishes. 
They, they, they profess Christ, but they've not been possessed by Christ. They say they are of the Lord, but they're not of the Lord. And so just as Paul says to the church of Corinth, Jude says to this church, that the woe to those who would be blemishes, woe to those who would be spots and stains on your love feasts. But actually the word here, if you go to 2 Peter, as we often do, and, and look at this um, this word spot or blemish and most of your bibles will say spot or blemishes at your love feast the esv says hidden reefs and other translations have different words for it there's actually a very similar greek word but it's one letter off with a, a vast difference and we can understand that in our english language right run and fun are two vastly different things separated by one letter and so in the same way This word that Jude uses here, although it is similar, it is not the same. This word that he uses actually means rock. It means a partial rock. And so he says, in essence, at these love feasts, they are messed up by these hidden rocks. These hidden reefs, these hidden rocks. And the the analogy that he's giving, the illustration, and and those this original audience would understand, it's like if you were in the, the ocean, or if you're at sea and you're sailing and, and you come up, it looks like a small rock, but you hit it, it becomes this, it's this huge rock or this coral reef, if you will, that seems small at the surface, but is significant and it causes great damage to the ship. You know, in redneck language, it's like if you're driving down shinny and it looks like a stick, but it's really a stump, right? And so it goes from just bumping it, moving on to destroying your boat. And so these people, they are like these hidden reefs. They are these deep-grounded stumps that bring damage to the church. Those hiding amongst the congregation who seem full of love for others, but in reality, they're only concerned with themselves. We've seen this already in Jude's characterization of these individuals, that they are greedy, prideful, sinful, sensual people. It even reminds us of the scene of the Last Supper with Judas and as Jesus is gathered with this intimate meal and there's one person there that we know reading on this side of the cross and having, having Scripture, we know the fate of Judas and we know he's not really of the Lord, but he's there. And these people have crept in. And not only have they crept in, they're very comfortable, it says. These are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear. They have no shame. They have no guilt. They have no conviction because the Spirit is not inside of them. There's no remorse for what they do. There's no guilt for sitting amongst those that they really do not love. And they only pretend to love. And this is who Jude is proclaiming this woe upon. Those who have crept into the church. Those who have an appearance of loving the church, but indeed do not love the church. Indeed, these people then and even now have wrecked many churches, but they cannot wreck the true church because Jesus truly loves the church, His church, His bride, and Jesus, His love for us will stand. Go to 1 John 3.16, says this, By this we know love that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So Jude cautions us against loveless leaders. But as we look to Christ, we see a leader, we see a shepherd, as we'll see in just a moment, who loves His church, 
who sacrificially loves his church, who laid down his life for his church, as we should be willing to lay down our life for the brothers and sisters in the true church. So not only does Jude caution against loveless leaders, Jude also cautions against selfish shepherds. Selfish shepherds. As you continue there, he says, He's hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast uh, with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves. Shepherds feeding themselves. Go with me to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 34. This is the motivation, this inspiration uh, that Jude writes from. The Holy Spirit um, uh, points us to uh, Ezekiel chapter 34. As we think about shepherds feeding themselves, at, at the service level, that seems good, right? I mean, who else is going to feed a shepherd? The sheep's not going to feed the shepherd. He's not going to have someone who's feeding him. He's got to feed himself at some point, right? But this is obviously much deeper than that because this is woe to shepherds who feed themselves. You go to Ezekiel 34. We'll just kind of pick up in a couple of different spots starting there. And uh, verse 1 and 2, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep. Then go down to verse 8. As I live, declares the Lord, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. And so we see this indictment clearly from the Lord God against the shepherds of Israel who are abusing their role. And this carries in the New Testament here where we see these who pretend to be shepherds. They pretend to be teachers. They pretend to be leaders in the church. And as we've said, there's kind of a, seems to be a, an interesting mix of these people in Jude that it's false teachers, it's apostates, it's those who are sin to be of the Lord, not of the Lord. But clearly there are some who are teachers. Clearly there are some who are shepherds. And these shepherds are not doing their primary role of a shepherd. That's feeding the sheep. They are not feeding the sheep. They are feeding themselves. How do shepherds feed themselves spiritually? By doing, by leading, by shepherding for the sake of their ego, for the sake of power, for the sake of authority, for the sake of their flesh. As we've seen these false teachers, as they feed their flesh through sensual desires, it says there in verse 8, they feed themselves, they feed their pockets. We've seen the greed of these false teachers. They do so, and we see it again other places in the New Testament where they do so for gain, for sinful gain. And so these shepherds are not here to feed the sheep. These shepherds are not here to care for the sheep of God. They're here to feed themselves. And Jude says, woe to you, shepherds, who will feed yourself. So Jude cautions against these selfish shepherds. And so how... Are shepherds called to lead? Go with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. 
Paul is having a little seminary class here. Is he speaking to the Ephesian elders? Acts chapter 20. Start there in verse 28. He says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers or shepherds, pastors, to care for the church of God, which He obtained with His own blood. So right there, we see it's not your church, shepherd. It is ultimately Christ's church, and He's appointed you as under-shepherds. I know, Paul says, that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And these are the wolves that Jude is talking about. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And so how are how are the true shepherds called to lead? Not to feed themselves, but to feed others, to care for others, to love others, to serve others, to lay their lives down for others, as Paul does for the church, as Paul does for the churches he serves, as he instructs other elders to do the same thing, to shepherd the flock of God, to feed the flock of God. But how even more than the shepherds, the under-shepherds that God has called to lead His church, how is it Jesus, the true shepherd? Go me to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, starting in verse 7. Jesus is the true shepherd. So Jesus again said, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. I came that they may have life and live it and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So there's no doubt who the true shepherd of the church is. That is Christ. He is the true shepherd. And there's no doubt who his sheep are. There are his true sheep are those who look to Christ in faith and repentance and trust the shepherd and follow the shepherd. For they are his and he is theirs. So Jude cautions against these selfish shepherds. He cautions against these loveless leaders. And then he gives us four uh, examples for illustrations if you will these shepherds feeding themselves then he kind of starts these four um four comparisons waterless clouds swept along by the winds fruitless trees in late autumn twice dead uprooted wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame and wandering stars it's interesting if you look at that, that Jude uses illustrations from four aspects of nature, of the natural world, the sky, land, water, and space. He even goes into space. All right, we got Jude the astronaut here. He's going to talk to us about space a little bit. 
So of sky, land, water, and space, Jude makes these comparisons. The first one is this. Jude compares these people to waterless clouds. To waterless clouds. So shepherds feeding themselves just simply put waterless clouds swept along by winds. And so what is a waterless cloud? Now, in our case, we, we have a much different relationship with the weather today than people of old by far. Um, we're driving into church this morning, and one of my daughters said they'd love to have been born in the 1800s. I'm like, that's nice and wonderful, and we can see these things on, uh, on TV, and we, they, they romanticize living right in the uh, where-the-heart-is world. But it is uh, far different. I can only imagine living in a world without electricity and running water and toilets and all the, mo- the modern marvels that we are afforded today. But one of those is the reliance on rain. And so especially in the first century, uh, these would have been clear, they would have clearly understood a waterless cloud. When you de- especially in Israel, in this part of the world, such a dry part of the world, you needed rain. You had to have rain. So you'd see this cloud come in, and as a farmer, you'd be excited. Here's this cloud. It's going to water my crops, and they're going to grow. We're going to eat well, or we're going to go to the marketplace. It changes one's life as this, this cloud comes in but then just moves out it doesn't drop any water there is no rain there is no storm there is nothing good from this cloud it is a waterless cloud so in a climate and time that relied so much on rain clouds are a welcome sight that they are met with hope and expectation they are met with hope and expectation. And this actually comes from Proverbs 25, 14. That says, like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of a gift he does not give. And so these clouds are met with hope and expectation. They promise to fulfill a great need. But these waterless clouds would leave these farmers and leave these people of this arid part of the world hopeless and in dismay. And these false teachers are no different. They promised to fulfill a great need, but they left their people hurt and hopeless. And false teachers today are no different. The Osteens of the world promise something they cannot deliver. And specifically, they promise hope and peace apart from repentance. Because there is no hope, there is no peace apart from repentance. Hope does not come from being a better person. Hope does not come from thinking positively. Hope does not come, and peace does not come from smiling and having a good life. Hope and peace come solely from being made right with God through the person of Jesus Christ. And that comes from repenting of our sins and turning to the one who makes us righteous and who makes us right before God. This is Christ. Jesus is not a waterless cloud. He does not bring us empty promises. He does not leave us hopeless and dismayed. He delivers on all of his promises. Jesus is the living water. And so Jude compares these, these false teachers as waterless clouds, as those who have a promise to fulfill a great need, but leave their people hurt and hopeless. But he also compares them to fruitless trees. To fruitless trees. He says they are like clouds, waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. 
So what does he mean? These fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead and uprooted. So this late autumn is a picture of, um, it's kind of the, the last chance for a fruit tree to produce fruit. They should have produced earlier, but they didn't. And so, okay, my tree didn't produce, so I'm going to wait. So you come to late autumn, it's the last chance, right? Winter is coming. If they don't produce in late autumn, there is no fruit to come. And so he compares these false teachers to these fruitless trees that people have waited on to produce fruit, and nothing, nothing has come from it. And not only did it not produce fruit in the, in the second half of autumn at the last time they should have uh, done it, but now they're totally dead. It says twice dead and uprooted. And there's a couple ways to understand twice dead. Uh, and ultimately, as, as one author puts it, and I think I would agree with him, it just means totally dead. It means there is no life in him. But you could also look at it as it is dead both in its branches, that there is no fruit, and it's dead in the root. There is no life. And so this tree is dead both in the fruit and in the root. It is twice dead. It is totally dead. There is nothing coming from this tree. There is no hope of this tree and this person's vineyard that's going to produce anything. Not this autumn or the next autumn. For it is totally and completely dead so there's not just a little life in these false teachers there's not just a little truth in their message they are totally and unequivocally spiritually dead go with me to mark chapter 11 this is uh we won't get into the the details of what this means but it is an enacted parable it's a parable that jesus is using for a um a very clear illustration. And we see this a couple other places in Scripture. Now Mark chapter 11, verse 12. We see what Jesus thinks of fruitless trees. On the following day when they came, this is Mark 11, verse 12. On the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. I love that little part right there. You know, some of us are reading um, Gentle and Lowly, and the premise is that we kind of get to see into Jesus' heart when I get to season to his stomach, okay? He is hungry. He is traveling. And so when you're hungry, just know that Jesus can relate. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to it to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it because he was making a bigger Point. And so Jesus curses this fruitless tree because he wanted fruit. He wanted to eat. That was the purpose of a tree is to produce fruit, to produce sustenance for God's people. And it was not there when the Son of God was hungry. And so he cursed it because a fruitless tree, is no, if it's supposed to be bearing fruit, is of no use. There's no spiritual fruit in these false teachers. There's no spiritual root in these false teachers go with me one more time to the book of john john chapter 15 because spiritual fruit is a huge topic in the believer's life john chapter 15 we'll just read the first five verses there john 15 starting verse 1 jesus says i am the true vine so we know if he's the true vine he will he will bear much fruit For he is the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. 
And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. From apart from me, you can do nothing. So as Jude is explaining and describing these false teachers, as he's describing these people, he is making it crystal clear there is no fruit in them. There was never fruit in them. There is no hint of fruit. There is no semblance of fruit. There is no smell of fruit. There is no fruit from another tree that rolled over and made it look like there's fruit. So there's nothing twice dead, uprooted. And Jesus is very clear that if there is no fruit in you, you are not of him. And we have to be careful, and we say this often in North Hills, it is not bearing fruit that makes us right with God, but being made right with God, thus we will produce fruit. You cannot be, you cannot, you cannot abide with Christ and be fruitless. He said, well, John, I'm just not a disciple. I'm a Christian, I'm not a disciple, I'm not a preacher, I'm not an elder, I'm not even, not even a teacher. I'm none of these things, I'm not going to produce fruit, that's for... That's for other folks. No, if you are a disciple of Jesus, if the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you, if you have been born again, if Christ has changed you, you will not be a fruitless tree. You will be one who bears much fruit because of Christ who is in you. But these false teachers bore no fruit because they had no root. So Jude compares these people to fruitless trees. He compares them to waterless clouds. And compares them to selfish shepherds and loveless leaders. And fifthly, Jew compares them to wild waves. Wild waves. So not only they're fruitless trees and laid all of them twice dead or brooded, but they're wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. I tell you, Jude is inspired by the Holy Spirit here because he just gives some very vivid imagery. Of this wild wave that has this, it's just cast, it's this big wave, and it's got the, the foam on top of it, and it's kind of coming over and it's crashing into the beach. Now, if you've been to the beach, and many have gone to the beach this summer, and every time you go to the beach, it's like a different experience. But oftentimes, if you go to the beach for any length of time, and those waves come crashing for a few days, what's inev- inevitably going to be left behind? trash right it's not bringing up water bottles with glass bottles with love notes in there that you're wanting to find it's very rarely bringing up any kind of uh sea life it's interesting they're like probably chopped up pieces or something or you know just bringing trash and litter and just seaweeds and gunk and that's ultimately the picture that he's painting here these wild waves are casting foam of their own shame their own shame they're bringing in rubbish and again you can go to I know we're all over the place in Scripture, but where else can you really understand Scripture except through Scripture, right? Isaiah. Go with me to Isaiah real quick. Isaiah chapter 57. Again, Jude is, is leaning on the Word here. Isaiah chapter 57, verse 20. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. 
And so this picture of the wave is not a, oh, I want to go to the beach and it makes me feel warm and fuzzy imagery. But it is imagery of these waves that are, are wild and they're, they're crashing against the, the beach and they're just bringing trash. They're bringing muck and mire and rubbish. Here Jude has in mind these people as being those who have come in to the church, they make a splash, and they leave behind rubbish. So they've come in, they've crept in, they've, they've, they've done what they're doing. Hopefully they're being weeded out of the church, but they've done damage because they've crept in, and they're sensual, sinful, horrible, greedy people. They're not of the Lord. They've done damage in the church. You could say it another way. They have come in, they've made a splash, they've crashed, and they left trash. That's what these false teachers have done. There is a celebrity pastor in recent years that he's done that exact thing, that he's made a splash in the evangelical church. He had a very hard and um, public crash. And now in the wake of his ministry that was likely not of the Lord, he's left trash behind. So that's these wild waves. And so we see that in the first century. We see it in the 21st century. I once heard of a well-known false teacher of today describe his preaching like this instead of preparing a sermon he would begin talking about whatever got the most response and he would pace back and forth on the platform and he had nothing prepared he had no word from the lord he had uh, not really any direction in, in god's word and he would just talk a little bit and then as his congregation got wound up and riled up and gave him some amens and some claps he would just follow that rabbit trail right there to his celebrity status like a wild wave splash crash and trash and it may sound harsh to describe some content of false teachers even today as trash but it's exactly what it is if these individuals as these shepherds are under shepherds of the church if they do not truly know Christ, they've not been indwelt with the Holy Spirit, and they've not been conformed to the image of Christ, and they have a platform to teach and to preach God's church, and they are not pointing people to Christ through His Word, then that's all it is, is a pile of rubbish. And Jude compares these people, these false teachers, to these wild waves. And finally, not only does Jude compare them to wild waves and fruitless trees, not only does he compare them to waterless clouds and selfish shepherds and loveless leaders, but finally Jude compares these to wandering stars. He compares them to wandering stars. Two simple words there. After he says they're wild waves of the sea, casting up foam of their own shame. Wandering stars, he calls them. So what does it mean by wandering stars? There's kind of three different schools of thought there. It could be stars, planets, or angels. So what is he saying? Stars is often a reference to angels in Scripture. Um, in this wandering sense, and we've seen this in Jude already. I believe it's in verse 6. And you can look at these angels here. They have lost their sense of, uh, of duty. They've lost their place. They've lost their position, it says, in rebellion against God. And they're cast out in eternal chains. And they are clearly like wandering lost stars. And we can see that picture. That's not uh, going away from the text, it would seem. And so, and, and some would uh, take this moment, they would cite the book of Enoch. And we've seen that Jude, he has gone to the Apocrypha many times, to other books that we're not very familiar with, but his original audience would have been very familiar with. And the book of Enoch talks a lot about lost and, and wandering angels, if you will. Angels who were cast out. So it could be that he's talking about these angels. 
It could be that it's just a reference to a, to a moving star. Now, we know today there are no moving stars. There are no shooting stars. Shooting star, if in case you don't know, it's basically just space dust that comes into our atmosphere, and it comes quickly down to the ground and usually dissipates before it hits. And so likely, it may or may not be some shooting stars. Some would say that it's even planets, because if we see things that move in what we call the, the sky and space as we look up, but especially in this, uh, in this part of, of history, would look at this, and if you were to look at something and think it's a star, and then it moved... We know now it's not a star, but it could have been a planet that is moving as it, as it revolves around its star, wherever it may be. So likely it could be this in view, that these stars, they wonder, they're actually planets orbiting a star, it could be. If a ship captain, if he were to navigate based on anything that moves, he would not end up where he needed to be. And so regardless of planets, stars, or angels, all of these have ultimately the same issue. There are things that mislead. There are things that we cannot follow. There are things that will lead us to, not to our destination, but to death and destruction. They do not lead to the, towards the path. They do not lead towards Christ. They do not lead where they seem to lead us. They make us misguided. All of these speak to us being misguided. And this is exactly what's happening in the church in the first century. And this is exactly what's happening in the church today. And exactly what's happened to God's people. Every time someone who is not of Him, who's not one of His under-shepherds, lead the church and that they are misguided. God's people are misguided. This is why God detested says these false shepherds. is because they are misleading his people. We see Jesus' harsh words towards those who would mislead his people and misguide his church. And we'll say that again, even in Jude. And so he compares these people, these false teachers, to these wandering stars, these misguided stars that would mislead the church of Christ. And then, in cont- and then we see here at the end. Not only does he compare them and these, these nine woes, if you will, going back there to the beginning of verse 11. Woe to him who walk in the way of Cain, who walk in the way of Balaam, who walk in the way of Korah. Woe to them who are hidden reefs at your love feasts. Woe to them who are shepherds who feed themselves. Woe to them who are waterless clouds. Woe to them who are fruitless trees. Woe to them who are wild waves. And woe to them who are wandering stars. For whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. And so Jude makes it very clear, as we pointed to last week, before the book of Revelation, before the, what we see is the final judgment in Scripture and the end of all things. Jude is making this case. Woe to them. There is a place for them. But this place is not in eternity in heaven. This place is in eternity in, in utter darkness that is reserved for them forever. It's very harsh words, but it is a very real truth. Those who do not belong to Jesus are destined for eternal death and damnation. And in death, they go on dying. We often don't like to think on this truth and reality. But all of us, Every single one of us, that is what we deserve. 
We deserve death, hell, and the grave. We deserve destruction. We deserve eternal darkness. We deserve eternal gloom. But because of Christ, because we are in Christ, we are destined for eternal life. A life absent of sin and death. So thanks be to Christ. Thanks be to Jesus that we are not these wild waves and wandering stars. Thanks be to Christ that for us does not wait utter darkness and eternal death. And that God gives that invitation to everyone who would look to His Son, Christ, repent of their sins, and trust in Him. And may those who are not His look to Christ in faith, trust, and repentance. And may those of us who are His continue to look to Him, to trust Him in every arena of our life. May we look to Christ as our true shepherd, as the head of the church, as the bridegroom, as our Savior. Let us thank Him for who He is and what He has done. Let us pray. Thank You, Lord, for... This morning, thank you for your word. Thank you for this truth. Lord, as we continue to, to walk down this list that is, is difficult to, to work through, Lord, as we look at these false teachers and apostates, as we look at these who are not truly in the church, may we be ever so humbled and grateful for who we are in your bride because of Christ. And we've done nothing to deserve to be your people, but you've made us your people by sending Christ. Lord, there's one this morning, Lord, has never looked to you in, in faith and repentance. May they do so by the conviction and the power of the Holy Spirit. But for the many who are here, Lord, who have looked to you, may we be so reminded this morning of what you have done for us. As we come to this Lord's table, as we remember the, the broken body and the spilled blood of Jesus, May that capture our hearts all over again. Thank you for this weekly reminder. Thank you for a chance to sing. And as we leave this place, may we do so in the power of your spirit. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.